You know, I love meeting people uh, that have done really, really well in something that I really wanted to do well in, and then just to find out that it still wasn't super satisfying. That just makes me feel better about myself. Um, I have a really, really good friend um, who probably has done financially better than any one person I know. He's a good friend. I remember going to his birthday party last year in his $2 million house on the lake in Dallas, and I pull up in, in our Honda Accord with like some Target clothes on, and there's Ferraris everywhere. And so I come into this deal. There's fire breathers, and there's all this crazy stuff, right? So I just want to kind of give you the scale of what this guy lives life as. But we went on a mission trip one time, and I may have shared this story with you before, but we, we bunked together. Um, and, and I was in, in the bunk and just talking about it, and I was like, dude, how, like, I mean, to, to make your first million at the age of 30, like, what? Like, what was pushing you to do all that? Um, he was like, man, when I was a little kid and people asked my brothers, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they're like, oh, I want to be a football player. He was like, I just told people I wanted to be rich. Uh, that was his goal. Like, as a kid, I'm going to be rich when I grow up. And he did it. And uh, what's amazing to me is uh, he, at, at that time, was probably about 35, 36. And he had already hit every major goal financially that he had set for himself in business. And, and he was kind of in this crisis mode, honestly, where he's like, wow, I set like these long-term lofty goals and just crushed them in like five years. Um, and now what do I need to do? And I remember sitting there that night and just going, man, like, so you did it. Congratulations. You, you are rich. Like, what, what now? And he was like, man, I'll just tell you, like, it, money's just money in the end. You know, it's like it's not, it, it, it still is not everything. Like, in the end, I'm still... If I don't have the Lord, I'm still just empty and don't have much to lean on. And, and I love stories like this because in my mind, I'm like, you live a life, you know, like I'm not going to have fire breathers at my birthday party. I'll invite you. Just know there won't be fire breathers there. But in my mind, I'm like, man, like it, it's always such a good reminder to meet these people that do, do what the world would say. Man, if you, can, if you can get to this level of anything, you're going to have satisfaction. You're going to have life abundantly. And for those people just to go, look, man, it's just... In the end, like, it's still just money. Like, you spend it, and it goes away, and you have things, but your wife still gets mad at you in the mornings, and your kids, you have to yell at them to get them to school. Like, life is still life. We need Jesus. And, and as we've been going through the book of John, we've looked at two chapters so far. The first was this, where John is trying to tell us that, that hey, Jesus is God incarnate. He is God in the flesh, but he also wants to reveal to us his humanity. It's very important for John that we see not only his humanity, but his deity wrapped into one. And so John is telling the story that he is the only way to have salvation. He is the only way to eternal life. And then last week, if you'll remember, we looked at the story of Nicodemus. And what I loved about this story, right, is you have this like super self-moralistic man who has kept the law, who is a teacher of the law, who has done religiosity to the utmost degree, and yet he still finds himself thirsty, he still finds himself a little bit empty. He still finds himself pursuing Jesus, saying, man, there's something that I still need that I don't have that religion itself will not give me. And then what John has done is he literally gives us the opposite end of the ditch. In one end of the ditch, you have the moralistic man that has done everything right but doesn't know Christ and is still empty. Today we're about to get into the other ditch, and we're going to find a woman from Samaria that's walking in current sin that has been kind of outcast from her society because of some of the things she has done. And yet Jesus 
comes to her in grace and love and mercy. And we see that whether you're in this ditch or you're in this ditch or anywhere in between, we still desperately need Jesus. We hunger and thirst for him and he alone can satisfy. And so with that being said, let's turn to chapter 4 of John and we're going to look at the woman at the well. I'm sure many of you have heard this story many times before, but hopefully God will continue to remind us of our desperate need for him this morning. And here's what it says. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. He had to pass through Samaria. I love that John has started this whole picture with this, this, this sentence that says, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. If, if you know anything about just geographically what was going on in New Testament time, you had the Jordan River running north and south. And then you had Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. So Jesus is down here in Judea, headed back to Galilee. Now, the Jews despised the Samaritans. They would have nothing to do with them. And in fact, they had made another route where they would leave Judea, kind of go over the river, come back at the top of Samaria so they could get into Galilee. And so when John says Jesus had to go to Samaria, it's not because that was the only path. So what is, what is John even trying to tell us this morning about the intentionality and the sovereignty of Jesus? And the Jews didn't pass through Samaria. So he didn't have to go to Samaria unless there was something else that Jesus was wanting to show us. And I believe that it was to show us that regardless of your creed, your nationality, your socioeconomic, regardless of if you feel like you like these people or not, we are to be light in darkness. We are to be intentional about the path that we walk so that the gospel may go forth and the kingdom of God may expand. And so here he is. Verse 5, so he came to a town called, in Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. I love this. It is so vitally important that we see the humanity of Jesus. Right, like we, we don't serve a God that's just some like non-personal being that when you're in your room and you're praying, your, your prayers are really just going up to the ceiling or that when you worship, you're just singing songs in a building with people. We, we serve a very personal God and Jesus wraps himself in human flesh. It's important to re- realize that Jesus walked this earth, that he breathed our air, that he bled blood, that, that he was... He felt pain, that he felt sorrow, that he felt joy and love, and that he felt the depths that we can go to as human beings. Because for you and I, when we come to Jesus, that makes it a little different when we think about the fact that we have a God that has been where you and I have been. Hebrews 4, 15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Like, how good is that? How good is it when we go to pray, the Bible's telling, hey, listen, Jesus knows where you're at. Not just because he's the God of the universe, but because he has walked in this broken world. And he's been tempted with all things as you and I, yet without sin. Like, we can go to him and he can go, listen, brother, sister, I know what you're experiencing, and yet I was able to conquer that on your behalf. Let me help you walk through this. We're not just praying to our ceiling in our room. 
We're praying to a very personal God that knows everything about us and can relate in some ways with the things that we walk through. That's an invitation to come, to lay your sorrows, to lay your burdens, to lay your troubles at Jesus' feet, knowing that he cares for us. And so here is Jesus, wearied from the walk, it's hot, it's the middle of the day, and he gets to the well of Jacob. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. This is very important. Like this is where John sets up the difference between Nicodemus and this woman. Right, I'm sure you've heard before, like in Jewish cultures, women were looked as less than men, right? Not only was like a Jewish man, or especially a religious man, not supposed to necessarily talk to a woman in general in public, like that wasn't supposed to be a conversation happening, but even further you go, now she's a Samaritan, and they would take their religious rules so far that they would say, if you even touch the cup of a Samaritan man or woman, it's made you religiously unclean, and you have to go through a ceremony to make yourself clean. Like that's how much they separated themselves from the Samaritans. And so this woman, who we're going to find out has a lot going on, walks up to the well, and she looks at Jesus, and Jesus is like, hey, could you give me a drink of water? She's like, how, how you as a Jew and a man and a religious man, why, why would you talk to me, a woman? Why would you ask me for a cup knowing that if you were to drink from my cup, that's, that's considered just crazy? And, and we see the heart and the character of Jesus, right? Part of John for us is going to be who is Jesus? Like how does he really live his life? And what you find is it doesn't matter if it's the most religious elite, he'll give his time to that man because he needs him. And he'll go and break all of the cultural barriers to elevate people to say, you are made in the image of Jesus, man and female. Everyone is worth my time because I've created you and I'm coming to you. You have value, not because of who you are, but because I have made you. And so here he is talking to the woman and he continues on. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself and did his sons and his livestock. And here is really the crux of this entire thing today. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I I will not be thirsty or have to come to to draw water anymore. So here's what you've got, right? He's going, listen, I'm about to unveil to you that something special has come. I am this Messiah that will bring life, will bring eternal life, and if you will drink of me, you will never thirst again. And she's like, hold up, that would be good to not have to walk to this well all the time. Where is this water that you're talking about? But Jesus is setting up the stage to really tell this woman her spiritual need. And he's about to flip the conversation in a way that would probably bring all of us to a place where you're like, ugh. But we see all of a sudden, man, we have this desperate spiritual need for Christ. And so here's what he does. He actually turns the conversation to the wells that she had been drinking from. 
the places where she was trying to find identity and comfort and hope and security. And here's what he says. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. And she said, what you have said is true. What, what has happened is Jesus has quickly turned this conversation to her deepest struggle, probably what she is most insecure about, probably what she is most uh, sorry about in her life. In that culture, she by far would have been ostracized for the fact that she's had five failed marriages and now she's living with a dude. All right, now scripture doesn't tell us whether or not, hey, maybe they all died and she just got remarried each time. The scripture doesn't really point to that type of thing going on right here. What it's saying is here was this woman desperate to find love and hope and fulfillment. She had thirst and she was chasing after whatever the world would say, maybe this will satisfy. And so she comes to her first husband and she realizes this will not bear the weight of my soul. This marriage did not give me what I hope it would give me. So it must be the person. So I'm going to go find another one. And they go to the next one and to the next one and to the next one and to the next one. All of, her, all of them leaving her unsatisfied. And so then she's she, unmarried. She's like, I'm going to go and just live with a dude. Maybe this will, maybe without the strings attached, it'll be better. And here's what I can tell you, man. This is, this is what the culture would put on all of us, right? There's, the enemy is constantly speaking this type of truth into us. This, it's a false truth. There, there is a reality that we are spiritually thirsty. There is a reality that God has given some good gifts to be enjoyed. But what the enemy longs for us to do is to take those and, and to make those into sinful idols that we raise up and we say, this is what I ultimately need. And what Jesus has done, he said, listen, I know the well that you've been drinking from. You've been drinking from the well of relationship. You've been trying to find your identity, your hope, your security in a man. And what you found is that it just continues to leave you empty. Here's what's interesting that I've found for you and I. If we begin to use the gifts of God as, as our God, rather than to use them the way that the Lord would have us to enjoy them, they leave us empty. They leave us lacking. And, and they leave us full of sin. And, and, and I don't know, I can remember specifically my first time where this, like, this principle finally made sense on, on a level as an adult. And this is a really silly story, but it, it's still like, is, is what happened. So when I was a kid, I was ready to turn 16. <laughs> like I wanted a car and I didn't, I didn't want a muscle car, okay? What I wanted was a Chevy Z71. Like that was the epitome of having a vehicle. And I remember, dude, I had a friend that had a, a really nice, jacked up, brand new Chevy Stepside. It would, had some 33-inch tires. And he would drive it to school. I was like, that is the coolest guy at school. I literally took a picture of his truck and framed it and put it on my wall as a 14-year-old. I was like, that's what I'm going after one day. Like that's how much I wanted this truck. And so fast forward, I'm a teacher now, and I get my second paycheck ever as a 22-year-old teacher, and I'm like, it's Z71 time. And I can remember I went straight to the dealership, and I had no clue what I was doing. I didn't haggle. I didn't, I, I just like, I've got this old school Kia, and it was the bad Kias, you know, not the good ones now, but the old school Kias. Uh, we got a lot of university Kia people here, but, you know, it was like a 2000 model Kia that you were like, that's dangerous even to drive. And I'm like, I don't even care what you pay me for this. I just want that truck right there. Didn't haggle. <laughs> this guy was like, it was a dream for a salesman. I'm sure he's like, yeah, we'll get you that right now. 
But here's what happened. I remember driving my four-door Z71 with zero miles on at home. Way more than I could afford, but I had it. I'd finally gotten it. And I remember driving home, and I was like, I know people are looking at this truck right now going, that is the coolest truck I've ever seen. That dude must be awesome. Like, that's how I felt as a young 22-year-old driving this truck. Two years later, I sold that truck because it got 40,000 miles on it. It got a couple dings on it, and I don't know if you've noticed, but anything shiny and new eventually loses its shine and its newness. And it just became this truck. And I know that's a simple story, but what I found was I'd put this identity into the vehicle that I would drive. If I could just have that, man, that would be the coolest thing I could possibly ever have. It's going to make me feel better. It's going to give me clout. It's going to give me an identity, and I got it, and it just didn't satisfy at all. Like, it was a distraction at best for maybe a year. And then I was like, it's just a truck. I'm going to do something different now. I'm tired of this one. And this is the principle that Jesus is trying to teach the Samaritan woman. You and I will constantly run after other places to try to fill our thirst. And I've got some examples. We're going we're gonna to get into it for real. Like, here, here's some of the ways that this happens for you and I. Maybe it's money that we run to. And we say, if I can just get a certain amount, or if I can just have these things, or if I can just live this particular lifestyle, I'll, I'll know that I'm safe, I'll know that I'm comfortable, I'll know that I have what I want. And so what we will do is we will pursue that above everything else because we think that is the well that will satisfy. Some of us distract ourselves with things. You don't need money, you just need a credit card. And so what we find is when we begin to feel loneliness or we feel a little bit like, man, I need something inter- internally, we turn to Amazon. I've got a buddy that's a UPS driver. He said, he said there's one lady, not, not one of y'all, obviously. None of y'all do this. But there's this one lady on his route. It's like a daily 15 to 20 packages, right? Because she's hitting Amazon up and she's going, maybe these things will satisfy. And they do for a minute, right? Like, let's be honest. You get something new and you're like, this is awesome. But then it's gone as quick as it came. Maybe for some of us it is like this woman and we, we pursue relationships, If I could just have this man, if I could just have this woman, if I could just have this thing, then maybe life will be full. And here's what I'll tell you. Marriage is beautiful. It's been given to us by God, but it's not all satisfying. There are moments where it's really difficult, right? There are moments where it is sanctifying more than it's joyful. But it's good, but it doesn't bear the weight of my soul. I love my wife. But she cannot bear the weight of my soul. It will crush her, and in the end, I will, I will be upset and, and empty. Maybe it's hobbies or projects or travel. You're just saying, man, if I can have these things, if I can do this stuff, then I'll have happiness. Maybe for some of us, it's alcohol. Look, I, I'm someone that would not say that partaking of a drink of alcohol is a sin. I'm not. But here's what I will tell you. There, there's the black and white, obviously. Like, drunkenness is a sin, no doubt. But here's what I'll say. Where does it become a sin for you and I? It's when we begin to look for that to give us a feeling, an escape, just maybe to take the edge off, something to give us something, comfort that only the Lord will give us. And that's why you see people fall into alcoholism because it never really satisfies. Maybe it's food. Man, there are times where I'm like, I feel stressed. It's Oreo time. I mean, like, I've shared that with you, right? Like, it's just a reality. But there's something that I'm going to a source that will run dry trying to find some type of comfort. Here's what I'll tell you. Do you all know C.S. Lewis who uh, chronicles of Narnia? If you've seen the movie, he he, he was a great philosophical theologian. But he wrote this book called The Screwtape Letters. And in that, he has this quote. Now, I want us to hear it this morning. I think we have it on the screen. It says this. 
Never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are in a sense on our Heavenly Father's ground. It is His invention. He made the pleasure. So what that, that section is saying is like these good gifts like money, like things, like food, like drink, like travel, all of these things that God gives as a good gift when they're in their rightful place, not to sustain us, not to comfort us, not to give us an escape, but rather just to be enjoyed for the glory of God and the good of the people around us. He says, we're on our heavenly father's ground. You're in the place that you have them in their rightful place. But listen to what he says. He says, all Satan and his devils can do is to encourage humans to take the pleasure which our God has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. He's like, we take these good gifts and we begin to take degree shifts to do something with them that they're not supposed to do. They begin to to be what we're pursuing more than anything else. Hopefully it will satisfy and all of a sudden we find ourselves off in left field. And he says, hence they... Always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that in which is at least natural, least redolent of its maker, and least pleasurable. And listen to this, the final part of this quote. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. This is the formula of our enemy. That we would crave and crave and crave something that gives us less and less pleasure. To get a man's soul and give him nothing in return, that is what really gladdens the heart of Satan and his devils. And this is the reality, guys, that we face daily. Like, I don't know what it is for you, but there, there is a propensity in us to believe that this list or just fill in the blank of what it is for you. That if we have those things, they will satisfy. If we drink of that fountain, then our thirst will be satisfied. And in the end, it is exactly what C.S. Lewis has said. What it does is for a moment it it distracts and then we're like, I need some more. But it doesn't distract quite as much the next time. So we go, I need some more and some more and some more. And what we find ourselves is in a cycle that leads to emptiness and sin and using the gifts of God in sinful ways. Look at anything in this list, right? People don't go off in the beginning and start doing illegal things to make money or make shady deals in their business so they can continue to make money until money becomes God. Once the enemy says, hey, if you can have this, it will provide. And you're like, okay, anything I've got to do to get that, I'm in. People don't turn into raging alcoholics that destroy their families and destroy their own bodies until they start going, man, this gives me a temporary release. If I can have more and more and more and more, maybe I can escape. All of these on this list are the same way. And that's where this woman at the well is. In her mind, it was like, man, if I can just have the right man... I will find peace. And the first one didn't work, so she went to the second one, and the third one, and the fourth one, and the fifth one. And then finally she said, I don't know, I'm going to quit marrying them. I'm just going to live with them. And she's found herself in the cycle of sin and brokenness, and she's an outcast and an outsider. And here is Jesus, the king of the universe, sitting with her and talking to her about all that she had ever done and yet offering up life eternal. This is the heart of Jesus, and this is what he calls you and I to And so let's continue on. They begin this conversation. Here's what I've noticed as people get to know that I'm a pastor. Usually the conversation either just switches to like, oh, cool, all right, we'll see you later. Or it's just instantly spiritual, um, which is fine. But here's what I'd say. I respect someone that just acts their, like, just be who you are in front of me. Don't pretend to be something you're not. And, and, And it does 
maybe hurt my feelings if you just walk away from me. That's also, and just ignore me. Those both happen, all those things. But here's what I would say. What she has done when confronted with her deepest sin, she's like, I'm going to just, obviously this dude's religious. Let's talk about religion for a minute. And so she says, uh, where am I at? Yeah, verse 19. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. So I see that you're a religious guy. You honestly just talked into the the depths of my soul. So our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say then in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. And then there's this verse that many of us have heard. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So she gets in this argument about, are we supposed to worship on this mountain or at the temple in Jerusalem? And Jesus is like, listen, the time has come. I am here. I'm about to defeat death, sin, and the grave. And to worship God is going to look like this. You have an encounter with the truth. He is the truth. Jesus is the truth. You receive the spirit of God through confession and repentance. And then you are able to worship in spirit. He said, that is what's happening right now. And then here's what you'll find too. This is just a little side note for the next time you're having Bible trivia night at your house, which I'm sure all y'all do all the time. Um, when, when he says, I who speak to you am him, a lot of people would say, man, Jesus never even made the claim that he was God. But here in this moment, he is saying that he was the Messiah that was prophesied about. He is the son of God. He has come. So we see Jesus declaring, I am the Messiah. Verse 27, just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. I love this. Like the spiritual guys rolling with Jesus are like, bro, Jesus is talking to a girl right now. That dude's crazy. Like even, even the most religious with Jesus in his inner circle still don't see that Christ is for everybody. Verse 32, he said to them, I have, oh, I'm sorry. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, I jumped too far. 28, so the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the other people, listen to this, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Isn't it amazing that like God knows everything about you and I? Like every ill thought, ill motive, he's seen everything we've done in secret and in the dark And he still pursues us and gives us an opportunity of forgiveness, acceptance, and new life. This is what transformed this woman. Jesus just spoke into the most, probably for her, the thing she was most ashamed of and said, there's still water to drink from. And she runs into this town. She says, there's a dude that just told me everything bad that I have in my life. And he says, if we drink of him, that we will thirst no more. Is it possible that this is the Messiah? And from there, verse 30, they went out of the town and were coming to him. Now listen, I want you to, as we read this last part, just to picture what's happening. They're at the well, Jesus and the disciples. Lady just ran into town, probably a wall around the city. And then all of a sudden, these these people start pouring out of the city coming to the well. Right? Most of them wore like white robes, things like that is what they wore. So just get this picture in your mind as Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He says this, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. 
So Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Do not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look. I mean, Jesus is like, look. I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Like I love this moment where Jesus is like, guys, look, a whole city's coming out. Why? Because he was intentional about his day. He went into Samaria when he didn't have to. He looked up and had his eyes up to see, hey, you know what? Even though I'm hungry, even though I'm thirsty, this right here is the will of my father to speak to this woman so that a whole city might come to know him. Can I tell you one of our biggest threats to living on the mission of God is our busyness. If you're anything like me, man, my calendar is just packed with good stuff. And so I wake up early in the morning, I'm like, all right, I got to get to the gym, I got to read my Bible, got to get my kids to school, and then the day starts. And then I get home, get my kids, do the thing, put them in bed, go to sleep, repeat. And all I have is my head down, and I'm just doing the grind every single day. And if I'm not careful, there's a harvest of people ready to hear the gospel. And Jesus is saying, Matt, would you look up for a moment and see? The harvest isn't four months away, it's right now. But because we become so busy... We would say, my schedule is so important that I, I, don't, I don't really care, God, what your schedule is for me today. And Jesus has given us this picture that he's saying, look, I'm going to forego food. I'm going to forego my thirst because my food is to do the will of my Father who sent me. And that's our call. That's our example. Is that our life would be about what he has for us. That our feet would hit the ground and we'd go, Jesus, what is your schedule for me today? Don't let me be so wrapped up in myself that I miss what you have put around me for your glory. And here's how it ends. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. I love that. The sinful woman, an outcast woman, comes in declaring, look at this dude who knew everything about me yet has shown me grace and mercy. And the town comes to know Jesus Verse 40, so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of the word. They said to this woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. John 7, 37, 38 says this. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Whatever we ingest is what comes out of us. Like as we live our life, what we provide for people to drink of is whatever we have been ingesting. So if that's money, if that's things, if that's status, if that's comfort, if that's food, if it's alcohol, whatever the thing is. That's what will flow out of us. But Jesus said, if you will come and drink of me, one, you will thirst no more. And two, I will create in you a river of living water. That as you declare the testimony that there was a man who knew everything about you, all your sinfulness, and yet still went to the cross and died and resurrected to defeat that and give you grace and mercy and love that will flow out of you and others will drink of that and find Jesus. That's the reason our church's name is Wellspring. 
Jesus is the wellspring, the original source of living water. And my prayer for us as a people, that we would be those that come and we drink of the living water and out of us would flow living water to our city, to our community, and to the world. But we've got to look up. We've got to quit drinking from stuff that never satisfies, things that just distract, that take away from the living water. And we need to turn back to Christ. This is what Jesus is calling us to in John chapter 4. And I don't know what that looks like for you, but it begins with confession. It begins with God, go, God, where, where have I let these things slip in that I don't even realize? Like good things that I've elevated out of their place. I'm thirsty, Lord. Show me that I'm thirsty. Sometimes we don't even know we're thirsty because we're so distracted by things that quench our thirst for just a moment. And so we pray and we ask God, what would it look like to drink of you? And what would it look like to live my life with my eyes up because the harvest is plentiful? Let me pray. God, we do thank you for your goodness. Uh, We thank you for your love. I thank you for the book of John. Jesus, where we see your heart for the most self-righteous, pious person that does everything right but yet still doesn't know you. And then you pursue the lowly of lowly. One stuck in sin, one stuck in shame, and yet you, you speak into her life in a way that speaks into our life. That you see who we are, and yet you still call us to drink of living water. In this room, every single person, including myself, turns to false idols to drink from. Wells that never satisfy, that distract us from you, that leave us empty and broken. And so God, teach us to be a people that turn to you, the source of living water, to turn from these these things that we've elevated out of the rightful place, to put them back where they belong. as a good gift from a good God, but they're not our God. (laughs) They can't save our soul. They won't provide what they say they will. Help us to see when the enemy is, is using his formula to distract us, to deter us, to turn us away to empty things, worthless things. And so, God, we want more of you. We, we want to hunger and thirst for you deeper and deeper. We want to crave you like these other things, but at the end we just get more and more filled up, not more and more empty. And so I pray that today we would do some business that we'd be honest with our own hearts and we'd turn from some things that we've been drinking from that just in the end won't satisfy. And so you move in us in this time. It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen.